Have you caught yourself saying it feels like we only have two seasons now? Our summers are getting hotter and longer, and every time you turn on the news, there's yet another record-breaking weather event. So if you feel like where one season starts and the other begins is a little bit hazy, well, you would be right. Yeah, the seasons of 2022 are uh, definitely unique in their own way. Um, we're in, uh, uh, what is it, third La Nina um, year in a row, higher than um, average rainfall uh, this year in winter and so far in spring, we've seen quite uh, below average temperatures. In this episode, we are discussing how the seasons shifting are having a domino effect across ecosystems. You're listening to Think Sustainability. I'm your host, Marlene Even. So I have some seeds here in my hand, ready to plant in the garden. As always, I check the back of the packet to see when the planting season starts. Summer. I wonder if this means a normal summer or a 2022 kind of summer. If our seasons are shifting, if they're different, when should I plant these seeds? It's time to ask the experts. You just heard before from Dr Nathan Emery. Nathan is a research scientist at the Royal Botanic Gardens and Domain Trust in Sydney. And he was just talking about the unique seasons of 2022. And so there's some flow on effects of those weather effects we're seeing on, on some of the plant species out there in the wild. Certainly flowering time and, and therefore uh, seed production time, we're tending to find um, is delayed um, a little bit or I guess a little bit later um, than we would typically see in a, in a warmer, um, drier year. The shifts in seasons have a cascading impact across the ecosystems. While I ponder about my handful of tiny seeds, it's fair to say that the serious implications of changing seasons and extreme weather events has been on the radar for those working in agriculture and fisheries for many years. Realistically, any season-based activities are impacted. These changes may, um, maybe we may be able to predict what these changes may be, but there are a lot of uh, knock-on effects that we just have no idea um, how they will play out until they actually happen, which is not a state that we want to be in. So let's start at the beginning. We're trying to find out if the seasons are changing, but this is all happening at the same time that extreme weather events are playing out. So my name is Alfredo Huete. I'm a professor in the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. So is there there science to back that up or is that just a feeling that we have that the seasons have changed? I think it's a little bit of both because, in fact, we have witnessed that, you know, spring is occurring earlier and due to warming. And at the same time, we're getting such extremes in the weather from year to year, especially now with three La Ninas and the amazing droughts we had just prior to that. So I think we kind of lose all sense of what's normal anymore 
And it's the combination of warming plus the extremities that are happening to us. At the start of this year, the United Nations highlighted that phenology mismatches needs urgent attention. So what is phenology? Okay, so technically the definition, although it's a very, very big one, but the short version is that um, it's examining recurrent biological processes that happen in organisms. And I put organisms as plural because what we mean by recurrent would be things like if we're talking about plants, we might think that by recurrent is that we expect an annual pattern where we get flowering. We might see fruiting, bud burst, the first leaf in certain situations. And we go through this cycle where the plants will initiate growth, proceed with their reproductive life cycle, go into fruits, flowering, pollen production, and then sort of like start all over again in the next year. But in the definition of phenology, we mention organisms, so it's not just what the plants are doing, but all of the organisms that are dependent on the plant material, which is our basic fundamental food source. So we're talking about insects, birds, amphibians, prey, herbivores, and it just goes on. It's like it's all interconnected. And all of it, basically, it's not until the plant decides that, okay, it's time to initiate our new spring season, the official new start of the new year. So until that happens, nothing else can happen. It's sort of like it's the trigger of life, and these are all life cycles that are combined together. So plants aren't exactly checking the calendar to figure out when they're meant to bloom, and animals don't migrate just because it's a certain month of the year. They are driven by cues from their environment. So when we talk about phenology shifting, it's about all these interconnected triggers or cues. If we talk about um, with phenology, these cues, just to give you a uh, rundown on what those could be, um, the most common ones are from the very beginning of first studying phenology would be photoperiod. So it's like plants need some type of calendar since, yeah, basically they need something to tell them when, what time of the year it is. So photoperiod is a good gauge since it's basically day length. While the length of day mostly stays the same annually, there are other cues that can shift. But for other places, the, the cue for the plant to start something might be temperature. So as soon as you start hitting a certain temperature regime, um, the, that particular type of plant will know that it's time for it to start a certain life cycle or stage of life cycle. And the other big one would be rainfall. There are some other ones like, you know, exposure to sunlight, fresh water, um, all kinds of uh, amazing cues that plants respond to and uniquely respond to. So back to the question of a shift. So basically, if any one of these cues starts to change on us, such as in the situation of climate change, then the cues are going to shift in time. And then that sort of like restructures the plant life cycle to begin at a different time than it's normally accustomed to doing it. 
The issue with seasons shifting is that the complex web of our ecosystems may not shift equally. So phenological mismatches, these get back to the um, fact that we're talking about communities of plants and communities of organisms, sort of like the food web. So a typical uh, mismatch would be, let's say, if the plants initiated or greened up earlier in the year, which it's able to do very quickly, but other organisms that are coexisting with this plant are unable to catch up to speed with that, then all of a sudden there becomes a disconnect, which we call a mismatch. Birds uh, wait to breed when they know that there's going to be plentiful supplies of insects and caterpillars. And so if those caterpillars are unable to keep up with that advancement of the plant material, then that's going to, as you can see, create a problem all the way down the food chain. And it disrupts it. And once you lose that connection, then that's sort of like what people are mostly worried about. And why is it that some species adapt to this, this shift and others don't? Well, first of all, when we're talking about a um, phenological community, uh, we have to bring up the topic of biodiversity as well, so that in a healthy ecosystem or healthy community, you do have multiple species there. They're all there because they fill a different niche and taking advantage of different resources. Therefore, they're also very sensitive in different ways to various cues that might cause shifts, whether it's temperature or water or other factors. So that means that these different um, components of a plant community are, some will adapt and shift in time with, let's say, temperatures, but others won't. And so then you wind up with this process where uh, plants are trying to keep up with, let's say, if it is climate change, either trying to keep up with the rate or even just keep up with the right direction of change. So we know some species react differently to seasons shifting or phenological shifts. So wouldn't it be great if we could predict how plants will react to rising temperatures before it actually happens? At the Australian Botanic Gardens, Nathan has been working with a technology to test just that. Yeah, so the thermogradient plate is a piece of equipment which um, essentially consists of an aluminium plate which is cooled along one edge and um, heated along the perpendicular edge which creates a two-way temperature gradient. The plates um, typically divided into even gridded cells where the among cell temperature differences are, are roughly consistent. Now in the wild, the seeds do not experience the exact same temperature throughout the entire day the temperature changes throughout because they experience diurnal temperatures, which is a fancy way of referring to the maximum and minimum temperature within a day. 
that is warmer during the day, cooler at night. So these we uh, these factors we can incorporate into our thermogradient plate experiments by um, changing the direction of the thermogradient and the the light in the machine, so that these um, seeds experience this diurnal temperature shift. Researchers like Nathan can use this thermogradient plate to test how plants might fare in future climate predictions. It's a really powerful way for us to get a lot of information surrounding the germination capacity of our species. So not only are we exposing the seeds to temperature conditions that they experience currently in the wild, but also temperatures outside of that and temperatures that fall within future predicted climate scenarios. So it gives us a lot of information in a short space of time. Some Australian native plants are a little more resilient than others. Nathan says they've tested eucalyptus species, which can germinate between 5 to 40 degrees. And so unsurprisingly, when we throw that information into our predictive models, we see that germination is likely to occur at a similar rate across the whole year. And when we compare that to future climate scenarios, that's unlikely to change because it has a wide temperature uh, window for uh, successful germination. On the other hand, we've seen um, species with a more narrow temperature uh, window for successful germination. So these species may be uh, predicted to germinate predominantly in winter or predominantly in summer or perhaps autumn and spring. And what we tend to find when we model these into predicted future climate scenarios, we find that there's a seasonality shift or a reduction in the time frame for successful germination to occur. So these are the species we want to be able to identify and potentially flag as a keep watch sort of suite of species as we progress into um, future climate um, scenarios. Looking at how these species of plants may react to changing temperatures and their capacity to adapt in the future is very useful information. It makes you think twice when you see, you know, a plant that's flowering in the bush um, and you go, oh, I, that's, a bit, that's a bit late in the year for, for that um, species to be flowering, isn't it? And then sort of gets you sort of diving deeper, sort of peeling back more layers to start to think, okay, well, yeah, we, we are in a in a cooler, wetter year. So, you know, these, these plants are potentially delaying their flowering because of those um, cooler temperatures. They're not suited to being open in cooler temperatures where there's no pollinators. Um, you know, pollinators are going to be less active, for example. So that's going to limit the plant's reproductive um, potential. So it's in the plant's best interest to wait for warmer temperatures. And if that happens later in the year, well, then that's that's what's going to happen. So a species that we're uh, looking at that um, is predicted to have its germination occur predominantly in, in warmer months now during summer and spring temperatures, we're seeing under warmer future climate scenarios, this 
germination window is predicted to have a seasonality shift into the um, the, the cooler parts of the year, so the the winter um, temperatures. And so this is this might seem okay. That's that's okay, that's all right. This species is still going to to germinate to recruit during um, winter instead of summer or spring. But when we look at this more in more detail, we see that this species is occurring in a part of um, New South Wales, which is expected to see lower winter and spring rainfall. Uh, much of the rainfall that occurs out in that region is predominantly in summer. So temperature is one part of the um, factors that we need to, to look at, but we also need to consider other things like moisture and soil conditions, because even if the temperature is right in, in winter in future scenarios, if we don't have enough moisture there, the seeds just aren't going to, to germinate and we may very well in these species see recruitment failure into the future. As Nathan and his team are on the ground doing fieldwork and in the lab investigating how plants are reacting to future climate predictions, Professor Alfredo Huete is zooming out to see what is happening now with plant behaviour and comparing it with the past. To get a big picture, Alfredo uses satellites to gather phenology data. Yeah, I guess what got me into satellites in the first place is that in order to understand phenology, you need uh, very long data records, and that's very difficult to come by. You know, for example, if someone were to ask you, you know, when would such a plant flower somewhere in New South Wales? Um, that's a very hard question to answer, and how would you even determine if you were correct or not? Because we can't be out there and sampling and keeping an eye on everything all the time. And most of the long-term data records are very species-specific. So you may have heard of the cherry blossoms in Japan, and there are certain species that are um, people keep a close eye on. I guess in my research, I wanted to take advantage of what the satellite data history has to offer for phenology. So we've, we launched the first satellites to study Earth back in the 1970s. So we have uh, 50 years now of satellite records where the advantage of the satellite being that we could go to any spot in Australia or any spot in the globe and look at what it was doing with respect to vegetation in particular uh, 50 years ago and compare that over each and every year since then to see if there are any trends. So with the satellites, we're sort of looking at vegetation communities. We're not looking at individual plants. One particular example that Alfredo has looked at is grasslands in Australia. I think we've done some looks at um, temperate regions of Australia, and we basically can confirm that it seems like spring warming is happening and that the start of the growing season and the peak and the flowering is shifting. At least we know that since using a particular type of satellite that was launched in the year 2000. So that's still a 20-year record that it does show a consistent earlier and earlier phenological cycle of grasslands, which is one of the easiest landscapes to look at. 
But I guess as we go over these 20 years, we also bump into the drought cycles and the uh, wet periods, and we see these large fluctuations. Um, so statistically, we can show that it's happening earlier and earlier every year. And when we look at those extremes, like wet year and dry year, we can also see very clear trends in the phenology profile as well. Like, for example, in a wet year, the plants basically decide that they don't need to hurry and complete their life cycle. They stretch it out for longer periods of time. And they sort of take their time in going from stage to stage. But in a drought year, plants, to preserve its life cycle, sort of speeds things up because it needs... It wants to get through the cycle, flower, and reproduce in case water runs out. And we have no idea how these impact other organisms in the ecosystem, which is where we have to sort of blend our work with uh, animal ecologists and insect people and so on. It gives us an opportunity to have a broad bird's eye view of our changing climate. And there's one intriguing way that researchers have measured the changes to nature's rhythm. Alfredo says using satellites, they can measure how the Earth breathes. So what I mean by that is that when we look at the satellite data of the whole planet, we see what's called green waves. So we could see with the seasons and northern and southern hemisphere, we could see how the pattern of vegetation is shifting spatially from southern hemisphere to northern hemisphere, back down to southern hemisphere. And it just looks like a wave as we go through these seasons. And if you match those waves with CO2 in the atmosphere, it's an exact inverse relationship. So when the plants are going full speed in the northern hemisphere, CO2 levels are very, very low. And then when Northern Hemisphere has finished and they start to respire and send the CO2 back out, then we see this big fluctuation again in high levels of CO2. So how could all of this data be used in the future? Is the end goal to use this data from the satellites and on the ground to predict how seasons will change and how our ecosystems will react? Yes, I'm an optimist. It's sort of amazing, I think, that um, this kind of brings up the topic, too, of citizen science. So there's a lot of people that are really interested in what's happening in their backyards and what's happening in their surroundings. And they're also involved in some of these scientific studies that we make. So it's interesting how, for example, I've done a lot of work with uh, people that study pollen. And, you know, they're very meticulous. They lay out a pollen trap and they measure it every day and they've been doing this for 20 plus years and they instinctively know that this year is going to be bad and this year is going to be good and we can't put what their knowledge into a formula and I've heard the same is true with indigenous knowledge which again you can't put into formula but it's based on historical experience and and for the most part, it works very nicely. But now our task is how to quantify this knowledge because we are having climate change. And these are testing the limits of what people can 
or do expect from year to year, and the extremes that are getting worse and worse are making it harder for them to use their innate knowledge and make these predictions. And at the same time, you know, we're altering the environment. We're planting things in the landscape. And so things are changing that would not be inherent in that indigenous knowledge. And when we discuss the seasons, spring, summer, winter, autumn, it's important to acknowledge that is a Eurocentric view of seasons, which isn't including First Nations' many seasons, which are marked by the cues within the environment, such as the current Darawal season, which is marked by the eels making their way through rivers and creeks. What we want to do is involve more, establish more on-the-ground phenology information so that the evidence exists, get more citizens involved in this area of phenology, um, because there's just, we can't be everywhere like citizens can. And Australia already has this amazing data set called the Atlas of Living Australia that's got citizen entries since over 100 years now. So one is to really get citizens involved, um, get the schools involved, And this will raise the awareness where people will witness what's happening on the ground, compare each other's observations with one another, like in the community. And I think this is a big step forward to forcing action from our politicians. And Nathan adds that having this data is imperative to knowing how our ecosystems will react to changing seasons. Well, it's really hard to be able to um, predict shifts without data. So the more data that we can collect um, over a, a wider sources possible um, will only be of benefit because that will only empower our predictive models to be able to um, predict potential shifts under different climate scenarios. Climate's very dynamic um, and we can only sort of guess up to a limit how it may change in the future and indeed some of that's up to to us and how we move forward as as a species ourselves as humans um, to how the climate will will respond so data is is definitely key we want to be able to to move to more of a predictive and um and adaptive perspective rather than just reacting to change after it's already occurred Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Marlene Even. Thanks for your company.